And it's just a beautiful thing to be here tonight. And thanks to Nakir, Miranda, and Mr. Coates. So if it's all good with everybody in the room, we're just going to turn up a little bit. Is that cool? All right. Shine, it's a brand new day. We're going up on this side. We're going up on this side. Big up on that. So you should know this is just one flow. Banging out your speakers, bro. And I'm about to go. Once upon a time with originality. Pull your car when you're front with fallacy. Now they all scared to confront reality. Run around rapping like they got a battery. In the back door, you're pulling the back this is really overwhelming. Yes. Oh, I, I had no idea how many people were going to come to the event. There's and, at least um, 50. <laughs> um, okay, so hello and welcome to our special live podcast of BuzzFeed's Pretty For An Aboriginal. I'm Nakia Louie. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm Miranda Tapsell. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I'd like to say a big welcome to Melbourne Writers' Festival. We respectfully acknowledge that today we are meeting on the traditional lands of Kulin Nation, in particular the Wurundjeri and Bunwarung people. And may we pay respect to elders and Aboriginal people across the nation. Kira and I like to have conversations that this country is uncomfortable having. And tonight is no different, is it, babe? Uh, no, not at all. It's actually a really exciting night. I'm a little bit nervous. That's why I wore this very sequin dress. So we're here to have conversations about sex, relationships, politics, dating, and the most difficult of all, race. And we are pretty excited that we have an exceptional guest tonight who delves in to uh, one of the topics that makes Australia very uncomfortable, which is race quite often. And with us this evening is comic book writer, award-winning author and all-round genius, Danasi Coates. And trust me, he has a bit to say, so hold on. But that's not all. Tonight is also a celebration of local talent. And we're so excited that anti-raised rapper Birds is here to perform. Yeah, Birds. Go Birds. I say that because I feel like it makes me sound more hip-hop. Like I'm down with Babe, you. Babe, you're so far <laughs> from hip-hop. Okay, not true. <laughs> I listen to Nicki Minaj. You uh, do. You do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so too is a local singer and babe, I'm going to destroy your tribe's name, but I'm assuming you don't come from near me. And if it wasn't for colonisation, I wouldn't know your tribe's name because it's probably a pretty long walk. <laughs> We're gay, a woman, Alice Skye, who's absolutely amazing and totally stunning. So, so much to come. Please give them a preemptive round of applause. Okay, now it's been a while since we've been on stage together. So what's been on your mind? What's been bugging you? Um, I mean, I'm, I, I am so in awe of uh, Tanahasi because he does have really mature conversations about race. And I guess, um, and I'm sure you feel this way too, Nakia, is that we, we started this podcast because we realised that, you know, that we realised that um, we have lots to say we want to start that conversation with people because we start to realise that the more and more non-Indigenous people um, that we talk to, that they start to have... They start to realise, you know, their, their world starts to open up and it starts to grow. And uh, 
you got, seeing you guys here tonight is just so wonderful because it's, you know, it means that there is a willingness to learn, there's a willingness to grow and to see the kind of country that we could be, you know? Which is really interesting because I get thinking about welcome to countries when I do things like this a lot, what do they mean? And I always kind of want to ask international guests, what do you think of an acknowledgement of country? And um, what does it mean to you? And so thank you all here to be listening to us tonight and it means the world to me. And the reason I bring this up is because um, an acknowledgement of country has a multitude of reasons as to why they're done. But one of them is about inclusivity. And it's about going, here I am, this is my community and this is my history and we're welcoming you. And I think in Australia at the moment, this is just my opinion and we don't have enough of that. We don't have enough of just asking someone their story and welcoming them in. And so tonight, I want to just add on to the acknowledgement of country that we did and I want to say a few words. Is that okay? Is that okay with everyone in the room? I think you should. Okay. So I've got my phone here because I put on my phone when I was on the toilet. So... Oh, oh my God, you, just, you didn't need to say that. I did. I don't know. I feel really dishonest if I don't tell everybody every detail <laughs> of my life. Um, oh, my God. But first of all, I want to acknowledge all the Aboriginal people here and our elders who, who survived genocide, who survived assimilation, who survived having their children taken from them and still come here and want to share their story. I thank you for your spirit and your inclusivity. I want to thank all of the people who came here um, who came here to this country, who had to leave their homes, who may not have had a choice and came here hoping to seek a better place and have made our country better. I want to thank all the people who may not have felt included in this country's values and still continued on to make this community a better place. So thank you, because without you guys, we wouldn't have a community, we wouldn't have a country, and it's for people who consistently fight, who consistently find joy in the hopelessness, who think about others when no one is thinking about them. That is what keeps us all here tonight. Um, okay, now that we're on the same page, let's get our first guest out. Everyone, please give a warm welcome to Tanahasi Coates. Oh, um, and all of you um, guys. <laughs> now, can I just get your name pronunciation correct? Because I don't want to have it wrong, and people say mine wrong all the time. I, I, I think y'all had it right. It's Tanahasi. Yes. I think it was pretty good at. I did a screenplay reading of my film. I, I, can I just, oh, I feel bad sharing it, but the lead actor said my character's name, which is my name, wrong the entire two hours of the read. And then somehow I ended up apologizing to him. Because it's painful to correct people. It is, isn't You almost it? like want to let them go, but the problem is if you let them go, you're letting them embarrass themselves too. So you're kind of, like even when it's not, like I did a thing about a month ago and the person that was doing the introduction pronounced my name wrong, but like two different ways. So they couldn't but, make it. But I was actually okay. Like, I felt bad for her because it was clearly people in the audience who knew and were just like, ooh. And so you have to, like, correct the person <laughs> almost as a favor to them. Yeah. Like, I'm non-confrontational. I don't want to have to do that. No, see, I'm, I'm really into lying. So <laughs> I'm like, this is just how it is now. Right. And I was like, and I, I was questioning my name. I was like, maybe it is Nakaya. Right. This is just... <laughs> 
like literally the tour ships would have rocked up on Botany Bay and I just would have been like, this is what it's like now. <laughs> like, like, yes, this is life. Like it was so easily resigned to it. And I was like, I'm sorry, my name's really hard. Like it was, okay. So the reason I ask this <laughs> is when Miranda and I usually do public events like this, we acknowledge our country and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land. Um, so how do you usually introduce yourself abroad? If you were to do an acknowledgement of country even, I dare say put that out there. I mean, I don't really do too much acknowledgement of country, I guess. Um, I say I'm ta Coates, I'm a writer, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. Maybe you could jazz it up. And that, that's it. I'm pretty ordinary. Uh, what does it mean uh, to you to be from Baltimore? Oh, man, wow. Um, Baltimore is an interesting place because um, I think in many ways, like it obviously does not have the fame of like a New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, you know, other major cities in the States, but it has um, <laughs> all of the problems. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, it has them all in spades, you know. Um, when, I, when I left Baltimore and I went to college, you know, I guess I had this feeling of, I guess, insecurity of being from this really anonymous place. Um, but then later on, like, I kind of liked it, you know what I mean? Because, like, nobody has, like, if you come to Melbourne and say you're from Baltimore, no one has any preconceptions hmm. about Baltimore <laughs> in Melbourne or anywhere else in the world or in America at all. <laughs> You know, it's not like being from New York or, you know, like you say, oh, you're from New York or L.A. or, or that, that sort of yeah. thing, you know, or Paris or, or whatever. Um, so I, I, I think that was kind of cool because it, you know, allowed me to establish my own identity, you know, for myself. So would you say you're like a proud Baltimore man? Yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. You should put that in your, like, when you acknowledge country. <laughs> <laughs> proud Baltimore man? I don't I just, I feel like I have great difficulty talking about myself, like, in that, in that sort of way. It's hard, you know what I mean? My people are called, like, the Larrakia um, Tiwi people. So um, I really proudly identify as that, uh, even though Wait, I... Wait, can I, I ask a question, though? So of course. I, I was reading the bios, and I, and I saw that in your bio. And, yeah. And you have to forgive me, like, this is just my ignorance. No, that's fine. Was there a period, I'm assuming, before this, where it was, like, shameful? to identify in that same way? Like the proudly part of it, is that? Well, see, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a biracial woman. Okay. Um, so this lineage, this Larrakia Tiwi lineage comes from um, my mum, who's here tonight. And uh, my dad is a non-Indigenous man. His mob are from uh, England, Ireland, and the Czech Republic. Um, so I, I think the biggest thing is that I've had to uh, kind of, I've been asked to choose where I sit, what camp I'm in. Just hearing, you know, like you talk about like how you identify and everything. Um, I guess like part of being black, and I would say even in America, like biracial black, and, and I don't know if it's the same here, <clears throat> but you don't really have much choice. You know, uh, the country regards you, forgive my language, as a nigger. That's how they see you. Mm. And there's rarely much confusion about that. Um, and so a, a lot of my work is about um, that, that racial identity that is put upon you. Mm. 
But then there's another identity that black people in America have, which is a cultural ethnic identity, which is chosen, which is created, which is the music, which is the culture, which is the, the food, the way we talk to each other, the way we interact, my particular accent, the way you know, some people recognize a certain cadence in that, and it makes them feel you know, a certain kind of way and, and a kind of warmth. And when you understand that, you know, I think like you know, we ourselves went through a long period in our country, you know, centuries in fact of, of, of shame over this stuff and trying to you know, work it out. But it, it's, it's one of the things that you realize that you're the inheritor of such a, a rich tradition that almost comes out of the, the racial aspect, which is the oppressive aspect of that. And once you truly get it, or once I, I, I truly got it after you know, working through it, it's almost like who wouldn't want to be black? Honestly, if you look at a lot of the art that comes out of America, it's clear that a lot of people do want to be black. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. You know, um, <laughs> now, they may not want to be niggas, <laughs> but they want to be black. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, well, it's really interesting, which, which I wonder is then an extension of white supremacy with the ownership over body and culture, mm -hmm. right? Because the ownership of, like, we will participate in your culture, but at an institutional level, your humanity is still not your own, is, like, it's significant of that. It's funny, my dad, I'll see, your dad was a Black Panther, my dad had a Black Panther tattoo. Wow. Yeah, he was, like, a lone Black Panther. Um, <laughs> We did have a Black Panther movement in Australia in the 1970s, but, uh, you know, Australians, are, uh, they're very good at learning racism, and they learnt it quite well by then, what had happened in the States, so they cracked down on it really quickly. There's a really um, fantastic doco called, um, I do believe it's Black Panther Woman, about Marlene Cummings by Rachel Perkins. Um, if anyone's seen it, please yell out and correct me if I got it wrong. Um, but um, where I was going with that is that... Um, looking at this idea of we will want, with acknowledgement of country, something I struggle with sometimes, is that this question of we, we want your culture, but we don't want you to be seen as human. So I guess my question out of that, it was more of a statement, wasn't it? Is that when it comes to then participating in adding to the culture as a writer, um, do, you, do you then speak for your community and are you aware of who, are, who is your community? Yeah, I mean, I, I, for all of my work, I feel like I, I'm, I mean, the first thing is I'm trying to create work that I wanted to see in the world. And I don't think I'm alone in feeling that way. Um, and in feeling in that, you know, particular way. You know, it doesn't mean that all black people like what I do. You know what I mean? But I, I think that I, you know, I speak to a, a, a particular feeling. Um, one of the you know more interesting things that that happened is you know um, I guess over the past four or five years you know I, I got this large white audience and I'm not always clear on why they're there. I mean I'm happy they're there. I want to be really clear about that. I'm happy you guys are here. <laughs> I'm not like I wouldn't I would never say don't you know what I mean I don't want people to read what I write like I I, I would never say that. But I think. Um, in, in, in the States, there was long this notion, and to some extent there still is, you know, among <clears throat> writers, intellectuals, activists to some extent, et cetera, is that the way that, you know, you reach white people who are the majority of the population in America is you have to, like, hold their hand. 
Yeah. You know, you say, little Johnny, this is what racism is. You know, you have to talk to them yeah. like that, you know, which was always irritating to me because, A, you're, you're constricting yourself, like you're constricting your humanity. You know, you're making yourself a child in order to talk, you know, down to somebody like this. They are a child. But the flip side of it for me also was when I thought about the kind of oppression that I have agency in, you know, as a man, you know, as, as a heterosexual man, look, if I go to hear, you know, some, you know, feminist writer, you know, lecture on misogyny, man, don't, don't talk to me like I'm a kid. You know, I came to hear you <laughs> in all of your anger and all of your, you know, rage and all of your feelings of injustice. I, I, don't, I don't need you to, like, dumb it down for my sensitive male ego. Um, because I came to hear you, you know what I mean? Like, either I came to hear you or I didn't, you know what I'm saying? And so, like, I tried to write in that same sort of, like, it's, to me, it's like a, an extension of great respect to white people, because I assume that you want to hear me. So I'm going to talk to you like I would talk if there were no white people in the room. Because if I were white, that, was, that would be what I wanted to hear. Yeah. You know what I mean? Do you think that's a new attitude, though? Um... Nah, I mean, I think Baldwin talked like that. I definitely, I think Baldwin wrote like that. I think if you listen to, like, I mean, I came up on hip-hop, and that's basically how hip-hop is made. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, but if you um, look at, like, in Australia, it wasn't until 1967 where Aboriginal people were considered citizens of this country, and that was, like, after two world wars, yeah, um, where a lot of Aboriginal people had fought, you know, and um, our parents were born at that point, and I don't doubt that there were white people at that time going, this shit is fucked up. Do you know what I mean? Like this, there would have been people back at 1900, I wonder, going, this shit is fucked up. So I wonder at what point we, 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 and this is just a question I'm struggling with, is you go, this is what I have to say, thank you for listening, like you're not a child, listen, but also, what comes next, you know? Like, where do these conversations stop? Because governance, the people who we vote in, I mean, this is a tangent and a jump, but that isn't representing who we are and it's going backwards. So where's that disconnect? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literature, um, I think, has a certain power, um, but it may not always have the power that we want it to have. You know, um, the, the, the job of the writer, and I, I just, I feel strongly about this, you know what I mean? The job of the writer is to state as clearly as they can what they feel and what they see, you know, about the society that, that they live in, about the world they want to, you know, uh, discuss. I actually think that sometimes I cross purposes with activism. Yeah. Because the job of activists is to actually organize people to go do, you know, certain things. And we need activists. But what if the writer sees something that is actually, in fact, very difficult to organize around? Yeah. You know, um, does the writer then not say it? Does the writer then not, you know, speak it? You know, um, so there's, there's a kind of tension. Um, it is not necessarily that they're at cross purposes. I, would, I wouldn't go that far. But there is, I think, a kind of natural tension. Um, because, you know, I just, I know, you know, in the work I do, and in, even in the work of other people that I'm most attracted to, it presents very vexing problems of organization. I mean, the biggest one in America that, for instance, our left is having deep trouble coming to terms with is the fact 
that white racism and white supremacy is in and of itself an actual interest. That you don't, it's not that there are, you know, white people in America who, you know, somehow have been fooled, you know, by Donald Trump into, you know, bashing immigrants or, you know, bashing, you know, Muslims. This is part of white identity. And white identity offers psychological rewards. There's great reward in dominating people. Um, and that's an interest in and of itself that people vote on. How do you organize when you have a force that powerful when more than half, for instance, of the opposition party does not accept the first black president as a legitimate citizen? What do you say to those people? Yeah. What do you say to people that, you know, when you have, again, half the opposition party believes black people are, are dumb, you know, dumber than white people, or believes, you know, some, you know, insane myth you know, about Muslims and the Quran. How do, you, how do you organize around that? You know, how do you research? That's a very, very vexing problem, actually, for activists, yeah. you know? Um, but the writer has to say it if the writer sees it, you know? And when it comes to, I think, like sometimes in responding as like within activism and, and sometimes within governance, is that immediate responses tend to the mirror the power structure that they're responding to. So as a writer um, who, you know, a lot of your work engages in activism and there is that crossover, do you expect to see significant change within your lifetime? Expect? No. Oh, hope to. No, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Um, but hope is not particularly important. Like, the, I think like one of the things we get caught into is this axis of hope and despair. Yeah. That's not really what's important to me. Um, just to quote a, a buddy of mine, you know, who talked a, about um, the black experience, another fellow writer, she said, if you look at black work, the actual important thing is between joy and sorrow, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, both are, are, are very, very important in, in, in my work. I, I don't need to feel that there's hope in my lifetime in order to get up in the morning and you know, go to the computer and try to kick ass or go out there and report. I, I don't actually need that because um, I am the progeny of people you know, who worked in America for 400 years, um, who worked for 250 years uh, and under the yoke of enslavement, you know, which means there are people whose sons and daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, great-grandsons, you know, great-granddaughters were enslaved. And whose parents and great-grandparents and grandparents and on back were enslaved and so they could look forward for generations and only see chains and they could look backwards for generations and only see chains. Where, where is the hope in that? And yet people fought yeah. and, and, and people struggled and so I, I, I don't, need hope, all I need to do is honor the tradition that made it possible for me to be here. That's all I need. It doesn't mean that, you know, things have to... I think it's, it's extremely almost selfish to say, I will only work if I see change in my, in my lifetime. I mean, what, yeah. what if your ancestors have said that? When you see something on the news and you feel brokenhearted when you watch it. Do you, do you put all of those feelings into your work? Do you really... See, like, but see the thing is, I don't really despair. I actually you don't. You don't despair? I don't, I don't. Because if you can see yourself in the grand sweep of history... Yeah. Like, like you, you have to ask yourself, 
I mean, again, you're, you're descended from people who did not own their bodies. Like, that's, like, and they had to live under that. And they yeah. had to make, they like, didn't have like, control I, like over why it. would yeah. you despair if you're part of that tradition? If you, you're part of that tradition. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. clearly, your challenges are nothing compared to, you know, the challenges that people, I do get angry. I just want to be clear. I don't, like, look at it and I'm like, well, whatever. That's the way it's always been. That's, that's not how I feel. But I don't, not just despair. I, I get angry. I get angry a lot. I tend to get angry yeah. a lot. But you, you know, get angry at the past or the, the responsible? I'm, I'm constant. It's, I'm angry right now. <laughs> I mean, anger, the anger part is constant. That, that, that's, that's always there. And I think like what it is is you see people whose, again, their need to dominate other people and their need for hegemony based on you know, the, the, the color of their skin or their ancestry is so extreme that they would blow up the world yeah. to preserve yeah. it. Now, in, in, in speaking to that, you're a vocal spokesperson for a number of issues in the States. Does it have any meaning and what does it mean to be a spokesperson here in Australia? Hmm. I don't know, because I guess I, I mean, I, 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 you're not wrong. I mean, I guess I end up in the role of speaking, but it's just not, um, it's not really how I think about myself. You know, I think I'm wary of that because I think, you know, you're talking about a community of some 40 million people. It's a very, very diverse community. Yeah. You know, um, there are people in the States right now who would tell you you're crazy black people. Decent black people would tell you crazy for having me up here, you know, speaking on behalf of anyone, you know? <laughs> so I, I, I guess I am a little leery of the notion of spokespeople you know, in general, you know, I think like the way to think about the black community in America is um, there are a lot of us. Mm. And there are a lot of us who are fighting amongst each other. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that, you know, about what this means and, you know, what the struggle is and, you know, how to, you know, there are people who do need hope. And they think that it's deeply wrong for me you know, to stand up and say, no, that's not actually an important component. There are people who don't see activism and writing in conflict, you know, or, or having any sort of tension. And they say, what's deeply wrong? So, you know, there, there are a myriad of voices, um, and I think it's important to, you know, just, just to, to take in, you know, all of them or as many as you can and not, you know, focus on one in particular as a dominant voice. Yeah. That includes me. <laughs> within Australia, they've, you know, within people my age, like millennials, I know I'm going to be stereotypical, blame us for everything, but they've, they did a survey and it was that a lot of millennials are quite apathetic towards democracy mm. and that democracy is not necessarily being effective nor has it served us well at, at this point in time. And you look at, you know, the states with Trump, your article, the first white president, um, with your piece. Within Australia, we recently had a thing called Libspill. Did you hear about it? Okay, well, it's not like someone yeah, like that's Libra spilling a drink it. or something. I can't fake it. My question is, is, do you think that democracy is, is failing people of colour, especially First Nations and African-American people of that diaspora who have had colonies that have turned into nations built on their backs? Can they coexist? Can equality and democracy coexist alongside each other into the future? If you don't allow uh, the people who are the original inheritance of the land to have any real say, to have citizenship, that is not what we would call democratic. Um, to take it, you know, again, you know, back, back to the states, I mean, you are talking about a 
country where, um, I mean, women acquired a right to vote nationally in the 1920s, so we're talking not even 100 years ago. America calls itself the oldest democracy in the world. I don't know how you say that when half the population or more right off the bat can't vote. <clears throat> it actually is more because even though black people in the Constitution, black men, the Constitution got the right to vote in the wake of the Civil War. In fact, all through you know, the southern states where black people live, they basically did not have the right to vote. Black people really did not have the right to vote effectively in America until the 1960s, you know, well within the lifetime, for instance, of my parents. Mm -hmm. um, so when you ask, is democracy failing, the, the, the correct question to mm -hmm. ask is, when was it actually democratic? Yeah. Like, how, how long, like, when was, when was the actual test period? Because even to this very day, this very, very moment, there are people waging war against the rights of black people to vote in America. It's ongoing, mm -hmm. yeah. right now. Um, and so, um, I, I don't know, I mean, maybe, maybe it will turn out that dem democracy can't actually, you know, address those, those sort of things, but we don't actually have democracy. I mean, we have a president right now who didn't garner the majority of the votes. That's just true. The person that got the majority of votes in America uh, is not president right now. We have, you know, the way our, our system is, for instance, our Senate, um, it's not a majority rule. The, the, the most powerful chamber in our legislature actually is not majority rule. Yeah. You know, and favors states where black people don't tend to live. That's not a mistake. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a mistake at all. And so there, there are heavy anti-democratic forces um, that have outsized power in America and have had outsized power, you know, for most of American history. Uh, and so um, it feels a bit premature yeah. <laughs> to say, oh, this democracy thing didn't work. I mean, you never had it. Yeah. It was never here. It was never actually, you know, practiced. Um, so we'll see after, you know, once we get to the point of actually practicing, then we can answer that question. However, in terms of then working within a paradigm of democracy and then trying to find empowerment within a system where you essentially don't have power, that can be, I think, for a lot of people, a really hopeless thing to be faced with. So how do you kind of extend that thought into, and I mean, this is also a big question, so I, it's, it sounds quite prescriptive, I do apologise. But how do you then extend, how do you go, okay, I recognise this, and then carry that into practice in a way in trying to engage with the democracy that relies on a white supremacy? Do you engage with it or do you completely not engage with it as an option? I mean, you know, like... Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, I think you have to. Yeah. I just, I, I think you have to. I think part of the, you know, process of becoming, well, A, again, like, I, I guess, you know, going back to this question of tradition, like, the question is not, you know, for me, um, how would I, Ta-Nehisi Coates, individually like the world to be? Like, I was born into a struggle that was already ongoing. Hmm. The war has been, you know, going on in, in, in my country, you know, waged by my people since 1619. So I'm, I'm part of a, you know, literally, you know, next year, a 400-year war. That, that, that's how I see it. And so I guess I feel some loyalty, you know, to folks who came for me. I, one of the big ways that, that you see this, for instance, is um, there is a debate in the States about what the significance was of Barack Obama as, as black president. And I, I just want to be clear what I'm about to say, um, yeah. because I don't think you know, what I'm about to say means that there is not really solid and important 
criticism, you know, of Barack Obama, for me specifically the way he, you know, referred to and dealt with black people that should be made. Having said that, like, I have to ask, like, what my great-grandmother would have thought about a black president. Like, that, that's like the question that comes to mind. You know what I mean? Like, did that, would that have had meaning to enslave black people? You know, where I come from, would it have had meaning to them? Did it have meaning, you know, literally, you know, to, to, to folks who had seen much worse racism than I had? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. I mean, it's clear, you know, uh, it had, you know, great, great meaning. Did it mean the end of the war? No, it did not. You know, it meant one step forward. Um, and it also meant that right now we're, you know, suffering the effects of a, of a serious counterattack. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think it's really, really important um, to decenter yourself as an individual in the struggle and decenter your life as an individual in the struggle. What, what right have you to feel great about struggling? What right have you to, to, to hope? What right have you to any sort of, you know, optimism? Again, I know I keep going back to this. But do you but think that not, as a fighter of a 400-year war, you have a responsibility to have a dream to pass on? I mean, sure. Yeah. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I have no problem outlining that, but I just don't know that you have the right to say, I will only struggle if I see progress that I can identify in my lifetime. The result of, you know, black people who, you know, for instance, fought in the Civil War to be free was that within 20 years, they basically in the South were returned to a second slavery. Yeah. That's what happened. I mean, it's extremely depressing to, to, to think about that, you know, in, in certain ways. But those people fought, man. I mean, those people fought under, you know, much, much darker conditions than anything we're facing right now. And mm. so I, I just, hope is not promised to you, you know? I mean, things could get much worse. That's the, the, the possibility, and I think you have to have something inside you that causes you to continue to struggle beyond tomorrow needs to be a good day. Because tomorrow could be a very bad day. It could actually be a worse day than you know, yesterday was. And you need something that steals you, that gets you to continue to fight, to continue to struggle through all of those bad days. You know? um, and I don't know that hope is sufficient. Dad always said when we were kids, things would happen that, that weren't fair. You know, you get called Abbo, which is the nigger equivalent here. Oh, ni we use nigger here too. Um, you know, things would happen. Who do they call nigger? Aboriginal people were. Yeah, there's documentation. And they, and they yeah. called us the blacks as well. There's old um, uh, records from, um, from the colonisers that came here um, to refer to the Aboriginal people as the blacks. So we've taken that and we've um, made it ours. Oh, and that's our beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, sincerely, I'm not like being, oh, that's cute. It actually no, is no, no. beautiful. See, that's why I struggle. That, that warms my heart. Oh, you know what I mean? I mean, that, to come over here and to see that, you know what I mean? And that's same, that same sense. That's well, that's the thing. Life. And I'm just sitting, I'm sitting here like, so I'm just, I'm, listening to you going, oh my goodness, there's so much that we have in common. One more thing before we go though. Black Panther, my God. <laughs> oh, how do I even, where do I even ask? I don't know, I don't even know where to ask. Oh, there's just so. Do you, do you want oh. Tanahasi to sign it? <laughs> yes, can you please sign it? <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> and also like what I, see what I love about it so much is that I grew up? I grew up in 
I grew up in Kakadu National Park, which is um, an incredible place full of ancient sandstone and archaeologists had just gone, to, like the Mirai, uh, the traditional owners, took, their, um, uh, took these archaeologists to this sacred site and they found, they found stone axes there, almost 80,000 years old. We were one of the oldest um, stone axe makers, like before the Vikings, before. And it just, you know, um, what made me so happy about seeing Black Panther was that it, it, was, it was speaking to, indi like, Indigenous and black cultures mm. globally. Mm. And because for so long the, the, the um, tale of Australia has been, oh, mate, like, we, we came here and no one was here and, oh, we, we died because there was no water. Oh, there's some strange black people that had water. We, they tried to give me some, but no, nah, I didn't want it. But I, so I died, and it's a, and it's an awful tale. And um, and then they you know. get on the internet and whinge about me, and we invented the internet. Well, what what annoys like the the age old thing is like when we talk about Aboriginal people, like the the age old thing that people say to us is like, well. You wouldn't have the internet. You wouldn't have technology. You know, we brought organisation and industry to your culture. And I just love that, like, you know, you used your art to, to defy that, I guess. Yeah. So, anyway, that's why. Thank you. <laughs> um, so... Um, Anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for coming along tonight. I know you've travelled such a long way. Um, and well, thank you. I actually learned a lot in this conversation, which is the important part for me. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. yeah. And um, please write more because I, I learned so much from you. <laughs> thank, you thank you so thank you. much. Thank you. <laughs>